friends, fellow anxiety warriors, mental health champions, brothers and sisters in recovery, welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Heimerman, and I am not a licensed healthcare professional, not a doctor, not a psychiatrist. No, I am a guy with 826 days of sobriety, and I'm a guy with the gumption to put his story out there. I'm no longer a professional musician. I was in a past life. However, I do have a professional musician on the podcast. It's Dustin Del Mar, the prolific guitarist from A Perfect Tool, which is a perfect circle and tool tribute band. And holy shit, can this guy rip. He's also more than 10 years sober. I'm grateful for him coming on the podcast and I'm grateful to you for being here with us. It is a beautiful day to get our 40,000 steps in. So let's get it. been a weird, weird week. I have had so many coincidences and I think that we've all experienced these where it just like against all odds, like you'll be thinking about something and then you'll, it'll occur or you'll see something that reminds you of it. These bizarre happenings. Well, the mother of all weird coincidences happened to me like minutes after I got back from dropping the girls off at school. I was getting ready to go to see my therapist. Uh, The appointment was strategically scheduled for right after I dropped them off at school. And I'm taking down the garbage cans before hopping into the car. And I'm thinking, you know, what sad bastard song do I want to listen to on the way to my appointment so I can properly thumb this bruise as I'm trying to deal with surrendering control and, and trying to figure out my identity now that 17 months of, you know, being with the girls Now that kind of my identity is changing a little bit, it's a whole thing. But so I'm thinking, what do I want to listen to in the car? And I'm like, how about some Radiohead? I was like, let's go with some really, truly miserable Radiohead and listen to talk show host, uh, which is a B-side. It was featured in the old Romeo and Juliet film with Leo DiCaprio. (laughs) So I take the garbage cans down. The car's running. I get in the car and the song is just starting up crazy, right? It gets weirder. On the display of Sirius XMU, it says that it's the band Japanese Breakfast and the song Paprika. Yet I'm hearing talk show host. Coincidence, right? Sometimes the display isn't spot on. However, the song gets over And the DJ says that was Paprika by Japanese Breakfast, who's going to be doing a serious XMU session, debuting today, yada, yada. And I'm like, holy shit. Did the universe just give me my own private listening of talk show host? Total mind blow, right? Well, I bring this up not only because it's freaking wild, but also because... 
leading up to interviewing my guest, Dustin Delmar, I did some proper Facebook stalking. He plays in this tribute band. It's a perfect circle tool tribute band called a perfect tool. And he's now taking on this side project with another tool tribute band called 46 and tool. So 46 and two is a very popular tool song, which because they give a lot of their songs, you know, different names or, you know, names that the name of the song isn't in the lyrics. I couldn't place what it was. So the girls and I hop into the car the other day, like minutes after I read this on the Facebook page and what would be on Sirius lithium, but 46 and freaking two. All right. So how would you like to join me going a little bit further down the rabbit hole? Check out the lyrics to 46 and two. Dustin brought this up to me late in our conversation. Check these out. My shadows shedding skin. I've been picking scabs again. I'm down digging through my old muscles looking for a clue. This whole song is about acknowledging your shadow, your dark past, and finding a way to grow through it, to leverage pain and become something bigger and stronger. Here's part of the uh, part of the refrain. I've been crawling on my belly, clearing out what could have been. I've been wallowing in my own chaotic, insecure delusions. I want to feel the change consume me, feel the outside turning in. I want to feel the metamorphosis and cleansing I've endured in my shadow. My shadow. You recognize it now? Yeah, me too. This is what I love about music. And this is why sometimes I have to laugh when, when people wonder why I listen to sad bastard music. Um, but it's because we can relate is the way to boil it down. For me, it's like when I'm feeling miserable, when I'm sad, when I'm anxious, if I can listen to music that reflects those feelings, it's a touch point. It's a way that I can say, look, I'm not alone because these lyrics are speaking to me. They are telling a story that is very much like my story. Now, my conversation with Dustin was awesome because it made me feel not alone in the stuff that I've lived through. You know, people living through addiction, you know, they come in all sizes, shapes, colors. You know, oftentimes there's, you know, universal themes of, you know, that we're, you know, trying to mask emotions that we don't want to feel and stuff. But some of the folks who have come on the podcast, like one person who comes to mind is like Erica Sandor Zur, the uh, professional tennis player who spent almost 20 years addicted to crack, you know, nearly died. She was homeless. You know, some of these stories I can't necessarily relate with when it comes down to the finer details. Well, with Dustin, it is absurd the similarities. You know, he drank to cover up the fact that he was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. He hid it from his wife and from everybody and was a high-functioning alcoholic. He only got clean when he slipped up. He was drinking despite the fact that he was attending AA. He was attending meetings, uh, but he wasn't taking it seriously. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, these similarities between the two of us. And this is why we compare war stories. Like the ultimate focus of the podcast is to send you away with something, with more hope, maybe with some tools 
to work your program and to live your very best life. But oftentimes, when we share some of these war stories, it's nice to hear each other and, dare I say, to be able to laugh about some of these dirty details because it reminds us that we're not terrible people. We're not bad people. We have an illness, just like a lot of other people do. And some of the absurd shit that we did that might be just confounding, maybe we were even confounded by it until we started working our programs, we're not alone. Other people share those attributes, characteristics, and experiences. So this conversation, you know, we we talked the day before the girls went back to school, and I edited our conversation hours after they went back to school for the first time in 17 months. It was a very, very hard experience for me after being their administrator by proxy, surrendering control, which is something I struggle with. The fact that the virus is raging out of control. So many emotions that over those past couple of days, I completely withdrew. I just shut down emotionally because I couldn't handle all of it. And so when we had this conversation, when we did this interview, It kind of brought me back to life, especially when I went back and I was editing it and feeling a sense of safety and comfort in that Dustin and I have had a shared experience and that ultimately we're both living our best lives now. Hopefully this podcast offers some of that, some of that comfort to you. And I urge you, if this resonates with you, if any of this stuff is, if this is stuff that you want and you don't know how to get there, please reach out to me, email me at Christopher at 40,000steps.com. Now, you know, Dustin and I both went to rehab in order to get to where we are today. So I absolutely have to talk about a partner of the podcast, a friend of the podcast, Gateway Foundation in Aurora, Illinois, where I went through treatment. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work, and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs, so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation, or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. Okay, so credit to Gateway, credit to the facility, the center where Dustin went, did the work, and got his life back on track. And you know, credit to the center where he where he does his thing now as he goes there with a panel and talks to people who want their lives back. And we're going to get into that too. It's very cool work that he's doing. So this is my conversation with my very good friend, Dustin Delmar. Hey, how's it going, man? It's going. <laughs> What's the laugh about? Oh, uh, I didn't. I didn't sleep a whole lot last night. <laughs> oh no! I ended up being wired. I was up to like one thirty. So you were so anxious about this conversation. Yeah. That's actually that's that's the that's the highest compliment. Thank you. <laughs> 
got it. Well, it's it's 7 a.m. out there, uh, so I appreciate you doing this early. Oh, yeah, no, of course. Like, I'm in northern Illinois, so what you're about to tell me might be a little bit Greek, but we all have access to Google Maps, so we, we can all play along. <laughs> where are you guys moving from and to? Okay, so we're not actually moving there. It's going to be a vacation home for my wife and I and my brother and his family. Okay. Is the, ma- is the main, well, I don't know if it's the main. That's half the goal. Uh, the other half of the goal is that when we are not there, we are going to Airbnb the place. So with that clarification out of the way, where <laughs> do you guys live and, and, and where, where is this, uh, where is this oasis? <laughs> so we live in Carlsbad, California, which actually, uh, Max who introduced us, mm-hmm. it's the same place that he lives. Okay. I've, I've never actually been to his place, but we cross paths in town regularly. That's where we live. Big Bear Lake uh, is about mm, 90 miles northeast. It's on the border of the Mojave Desert, basically. It's kind of the dividing line, the dividing line between the L.A. Basin and desert for like, you know, 700, 1,000 miles, however long it is. It's a nice backyard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> If you're if you're into if you're into the the mountain biking and dune buggy thing and all that then yeah yeah is that you no I the desert thing I I I, I grew up at the base actually I grew up at the town at the base of the mountain there okay so summer temperatures ninety five to a hundred for a month maybe two you, eventually you just get to the point where you're just like okay yeah. I don't need to do this anymore and then you live by the beach and it's a balmy 80 mm-hmm. and you're like man yeah no i'm not going back to that <laughs> the mountains yes clean air in the mountains and all that stuff yes absolutely at yeah. the desert at the base of the mountain yeah not so much big bear lake i love i love when you get into that part of the country the really really cool names of places that you run into, <laughs> which I, I, that's kind of a, kind of a mild example, but you and I were talking about it yesterday, like Jackson hole, Wyoming. And <laughs> there's, there's a road, like we're, we're kind of like an hour West of Chicago and there's a road in Dixon, which is West of here where we used to live called bloody Gulch road. And nice. <laughs> and that, I that, like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as as a guy in, you know, for those listening and you know, I'll mention it in the intro and I'll link it and link the band and stuff. You're in uh it's called a perfect is it a perfect tool or just perfect tool? A perfect tool. Okay, that makes sense because it's it's a, a perfect circle and tool tribute band. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So as as a guy who plays in an ensemble like that, like titles like Bloody Gulch Road have to kind kind of be right <laughs> up your alley, right? Well, I mean, I I guess it's what you get used to. I I, I find it interesting that somebody would decide to name a road that. I don't know if I like it as a road name, but the fact that somebody actually, why? (laughs) Like, what happened that made somebody go, all right, that's bloody gulch. I never asked. That's, to me, the story. (laughs) As a journalist who worked at the local news, how did I never ask that? That's a failing on my part. But it's never too late. I'm making a phone call to the Dixon, you know, (laughs) Historical Society after this to find out. You'll have to let me know how that goes. (laughs) Well, when we were talking, it sounds as though you 
you weren't necessarily, maybe I, I mis misgathered this, but you weren't like a, a tool super fan before you joined this ensemble. I, I, I really enjoyed tool tools music as a, a teenager. And then I, I went off to college and I honestly, I, I know I listened to it, but like to say that I would have been in a tool band at that time, never would have crossed my mind. How did it happen? I was actually playing in a Godsmack tribute band. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, and we played it. We played a show with a perfect tool. And at the time they only had one guitar player and they wanted a second guitar player to be able to do the perfect circle stuff. Got it. Because because of the two guitar thing with them. And so they approached me after the show and I, I was like, yeah, sure, of course. And then the original guitar player, like two weeks after I joined, was like, uh, yeah, my, my job's getting busy and I don't have time for this anymore, so I'm out. Yeah. And so I suddenly went from being the second guitar to your V guitar. Ah. And then we, we've, we've in and out with second It's hard to get getting a, a guitar player to come out to a gig to play three or four songs. Yeah for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, drive, Hey, drive to LA and lug <laughs> your gear up here to play three, four songs. Yeah. So we have a couple of people that do it with us, but it's not consistent. So yeah, mostly we do tool and a couple of the hits of a perfect circle. Well, now I, when you and I were talking a couple of months ago, like you downplayed your musical talent and, or may, no, maybe it wasn't that. No, no, no. What it was, was you downplayed the difficulty in being in a tool tribute band. There's, there's something going on there where I, I think this might be your humility because to me, like the mixing of time signatures and stuff to me, that's some like advanced placement <laughs> guitar work. I don't disagree, and I've, I've had somebody else said this about themselves uh, that made me go, oh, that's okay, that's me. Um, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Oh, wow, this is a safe place. Well, <laughs> <laughs> solidarity. Like, when I look at video of us playing and I hear what it sounds like, I know that's not just average talent. I, I can look at that and go, yeah, we're good. And as a part of that, that means I'm good. But when I'm standing on stage playing, it's a, oh my God, the, this, I, I, what, what if I mess up? Oh my God, I, I don't, I, and at the time, it doesn't sound as good to me because I hear every little mistake mm-hmm. that I make. And I assume everybody else can hear it too. Yeah. And then and then you go out and talk to people after the show, and they they notice any of it. You're yeah. just like, uh, okay, fine. So it took it took it probably took me, I don't know, a year. I and I still feel that way, but I don't let it bother me anymore. It probably took me a year of consistently getting talked to after shows about saying, yeah, I didn't, I didn't notice anything wrong. And these are people that know the music Yeah, for me to finally get to a point of going, okay, 
you're making mistakes, but nobody cares. The fact of the matter is, is they want to come out and have a good time. And unless you make a mistake and flat out stop playing. Oh, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're never going to notice. Mm-hmm. So you just, you just learn. It's one of those learned things where you just go, all right. Yeah. 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 I, I, in my head, I'm still doing the, yeah, yeah, I don't sound that good, but. Yeah. You, you've, you've learned to roll with it. And that's what we're trying to teach the girls as they, they're actually, they're starting up guitar lessons next week, which I'm super oh, awesome. stoked about. But like when they're singing with, you know, they'll be nervous going into like a, like a school concert and, you know, I'll just be like, you mess up you just roll with it. You know, you just keep going. I kind of, because I, I can tell them that because I've wrestled with that too, just like you have. So I've, I have, I have stopped. I have gotten caught in the moment where I've frozen and I've been so paralyzed by realizing that I've made a mistake. I've been there, done that, particularly as a teenager, because you know, there were several years where I was, I was in a band and for me, it wasn't, uh, I, I, I dabble very, very poorly on a bunch of instruments, but predominantly I'm a vocalist. Okay. So for me, it was like being within a choir in, in like high school and like shutting down. And then like, to me, I started to realize that there's no worse feeling than being caught in that moment and not pushing through it. And I kind of learned that there's the satisfaction of plowing through it. And like re-merging onto the highway, the sonic highway. (laughs) Yeah. The the first time, I want to say probably the first couple of times it happened, that split second of, oh God, I messed up. Mm -hmm. And actually pausing, like not for long, but just long enough for it actually to be like, oh, I actually stopped. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I have to keep, I have to keep going. This is not practicing at home in the garage where you go, oops, I messed up, start over. And yeah. And everybody else in the band gets pissed and like, no, no. Yeah. Well, and I would, and when I practiced with the band, the first couple of times it happened where I flat out stopped and they're like, what are you doing? Mm. I mean, and, and this was the first band I'd ever played in. I spent 20 years learning, learning to play guitar. Okay in my garage just listening to cds and i never thought i would be in a band yeah. i i too nervous being in front of people wow. that i thought i would never do that wow it sounds like when you go back and watch shows it sounds good to you though like you know you don't like pick yourself oh, yeah. too terribly and, and stuff like I, I i still hear it yeah like i i can't not hear it. for <laughs> me it, it just it, stands out like a sore thumb because i'm like yeah that was yeah. yeah but if you have somebody who shares video on facebook or something and they're standing in the crowd and i hear a mistake and see me see me on stage making the mistake but you hear everybody else and see all the people standing around not not saying anything it's like oh okay yeah nobody, nobody notices it's okay <laughs> so egomaniac with an inferiority complex, which my God, I, I couldn't possibly <laughs> phrase it better. The self-diagnosis over here now. What, yeah. I and mean, <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, well, and it takes away that feeling of loneliness of like, what the hell is this that I'm afflicted with? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So this is going to ma- watch, watch this transition. Um, <laughs> was it the case for you that these sort of like conflicting uh, personality traits led to like not feeling comfortable in your own skin. Watch me play therapist. And that might've brought you down the road 
of sort of self-medicating and, and, and trying to mask those feelings? You probably literally just took the words right out of my mouth. Okay, we're down here. I, well, thank you for joining me. I, 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 um, it's one of those things growing up where it was always what plays through my head when I go into an interaction with somebody is, all right, what are they thinking? What do, what do they want me to be, and how do I fulfill that? Mm. And never mind the fact that what they want me to be is none of my business and it's not my responsibility to fulfill that need it's my responsibility to myself to be me and as a as a teenager you don't you don't think that stuff as a teenager you want to fit in with your friends and if all i ever thought was okay so what did i do wrong even if I didn't do anything, it's the same thing as being on stage. I assumed that everything I did was being judged by them. And it turns out it's not. They don't think about me nearly as much as I think about myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people think of, you know, somebody who is egomaniacal as like somebody who feels like they're better than everybody else. When really on the contrary, like if we think about the definition of egocentric, it's that we are constantly wondering how everybody else is evaluating us. And it's pretty dope that you've gotten to a place now where you recognize that and you are focusing more on you and your perception of yourself. I mean, it's, it's got to be a long journey to get there. I, I'm guessing that you're a couple of years younger than me. I, I'm about to turn 42. Are, are you, uh, How old are you? <laughs> I just turned 42 last week. Ah, okay. So I'm trying to catch up with you then. Got it. You're, 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 you're right behind. <laughs> if I just run a little faster, a close race. Well, and another area where I will never catch you is in sobriety. Which, uh, how many years do you have now? Uh, over ten, just over ten. That's what I thought, and that—that's—that's that's fucking terrific, man. So we're talking about you know when you were thirty-one, thirty-two years old. How much was building up to that point? Was this sort of a, a slow? to use a nine inch nails term, was it, was this a slow trip, uh, in the downward spiral? Um, fits and starts, I think is the best way to describe it. When I started drinking, you know, as a teenager, when you start drinking, it's easy to look at what you're doing and just think, oh yeah, teenagers drink. I mean, when they drink, they drink to get drunk. It's, it's part of the experience. It's what we do. Mm-hmm. Right. And as I look back, clearly from a different perspective, I drank alcoholically from the start. Yeah. When 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 you consistently every weekend for the span of your senior year in high school get together with friends and drink to get blackout drunk, that's alcoholic drinking. Whether you're actually fully addicted at that point, the 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 wheel the the idea is already there. So I started that way and then kind of dropped off for a while. I mean, I was drinking, but it wasn't crazy. And then somewhere around 24, 25 years old, it went downhill quickly. And it went from, you know, having three or four beers at the end of the night or a drink when we go out to dinner to having bottles stashed around the house. Mm, okay. And, and And I'm not just saying like, Oh yeah, I had a bottle stashed in the garage. No, I literally had a bottle of something in every room of the house. Mm. 
so that wherever my wife was, I could access a bottle. I remember quite clearly the first time I did it, my brother and I playing video games in the living room, and there's a, like a, a coat closet by the front door, and we had a bottle of Jack Daniels stashed in there, and we were drinking beers, playing video games, and we would get up in the middle, and why hide it? But literally get up in the middle, go into the closet, grab it, swig back, and then go back to playing. Hmm. So that my wife wouldn't know how much we were actually drinking. Okay, yeah. And I remember quite clearly thinking, normal people don't hide booze in the closet. Yeah. And, I mean, that was the extent of the thought. Obviously, I didn't stop at that point. But that was one of those moments where you just go, yeah, this isn't normal. I think I would say from that point, somewhere around five or six years, I went from, yeah, having a, a swig every once in a while to from the time I got up in the morning till the time I went to bed at night. Yeah. And if I didn't have a drink for, I don't know, two, three, four hours or something, mm-hmm. I, I got shaky and I was a complete and non-functional person if I didn't have alcohol in yeah. my system. It's interesting that you can point to that first time of hiding it. It's funny, no matter how much inventory I take, no matter how much I reflect, you know, I I can point to so very many instances that I think were the beginning, but then it's like, oh, but no shit. There was, there was, there was that too, but it, and they pop up randomly. It's true, but it, but it is, it is a matter of once you figure out you can get away with it that mm-hmm. and you can be high. I mean, cause you, you were obviously high functioning, you know, you, you weren't, you weren't unemployed. Yeah. You were living your life, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had, I had a job. I never lost my job. Mm-hmm. I never, I didn't lose my wife. I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose my car. I ne. I don't know how I never got a DUI. <laughs> I was pulled over with open containers in the car twice on a military base. Holy shit. Okay. I identified with you for a moment there. I identified because I've been pulled over twice, but never on a military base. Well, I mean, police are police. That's true. That's true. But yeah, on a military base, if, if I, that would have been my job Mm -hmm. because I worked on the base as a civilian. Mm -hmm. And if they would have caught me that, that would have been, all right, you have a DUI. You can no longer get to your job, so you're fired, mm-hmm. and where it goes from there. Well, so. it, in the in the interest of sort of you know comparing war stories, and I and here, <laughs> well, and here's the thing about the podcast: we, we are going to get to the place where, and this is the uh, this is the ultimate emphasis is how how we work our tools, how awesome life is now, how, how awesome things right. are on the other side. But I need to point out that I can relate in that I as a newspaper editor, I covered crime and courts. So on a daily basis, I would go through security at the courthouse, be wanted mm-hmm. by sheriff's deputies and never got caught. So yeah, you, you develop this feeling of invincibility. Now for me, it was like once every two, three, four months, I would forget like an empty in the car. I would miss one or it'd be, <laughs> did, did, did you run to that into that where it, it's, it's Stephanie, right? Your wife where, where she would find, yeah. where she would find him. Yeah. Uh, and the main part of the hiding, the real main part of the hiding, and this is kind of jumping a bit, but was after I had started attending AA. Okay. 
I, I had had one of those that that initial moment of oh my god this is this is really bad I need to I need to do something and so I went on my own was like okay I need to go do this and I wasn't serious about it yeah I was I was I was in trouble and I was trying to get out of it yeah so the main part of my hiding my drinking was three years while I was trying trying really hard to get sober and. So I would I would go a month or two months or three months not drinking and then think, oh, yeah, see, I'm good. I missed a couple meetings and no big deal. Yeah. And I can have one. And it would turn into basically until she caught that slip that you were talking about, mm-hmm. that that one bottle that you missed or she would say she was going had to go to the office in Irvine for work. And then something would come up and she'd be halfway home before she said, oh, yeah, I forgot my keys. And I'm like splayed out already drunk, you know, like, oh, crap. And I can't do anything about it at this point. Right. So, yeah, basically it would come down to I wouldn't get I wouldn't get sober again until that slip happened. And it might be a month. It might be a week. It might be three months. Yeah, it was. But it was never me after that initial time. Mm -hmm. It was never me that put the brakes on. Yeah. It was always some circumstance and it was usually her mm-hmm. catching me. Yeah. And and yeah, so yeah, that missed bottle that oh crap, I can't believe I left that sitting in plain sight right on the kitchen table. Right. You know? Yeah. I uh same. <laughs> same can actually relate. <laughs> there was the the holiday season of 2018 going into 2019 i got clean for a bit similar circumstances and i I was feeling really good about it and we went uh on a little holiday trip up to the madison area in wisconsin had like the greatest week of my life was feeling good working out once twice a day got back and the very first day that i went to work i just I decided I was going to go and pick up a six pack. I slid through an intersection and and hit another car. Fortunately, the other driver wasn't hurt. I got sighted. I got back into my car and rather than having that come to Jesus moment, I went and I bought it anyway and mm-hmm. went down the spiral again. And it was a few months after that that I finally snapped at work, walked out, messaged my wife, and she got me to the ER and we got me into treatment. What did that look like for you? Because, I mean, it sounds like neither you nor I had that rock bottom moment, which uh, rock bottom is an absolute fallacy. And if you go looking for a rock bottom, you're going to find a false bottom and more false bottoms. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're 31, 32 years old. And how does that turning point happen? So... Along with the hiding the drinking during that three years, I spent a lot of time in the hospital. Okay. Uh, all for drinking related stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, early stage cirrhosis. My liver flat out stopped functioning for like a month. I had a grand mal seizure when I tried to quit cold turkey at one point. Right. So I spent a lot of time in the hospital. And, you know, that's one of those things. When you go into a hospital and it's quite clear to the doctors that you have a drinking problem, they they tell you about it mm-hmm. and the insanity of the disease and the, I, I don't, I don't have a problem mm-hmm. every time and walk out the door and maybe, maybe wait a day mm-hmm. or stop on the way home from the hospital and get more. Yeah. 
at the time that my bottom happened, I was three months sober. I had just had my hip replaced. Mm-hmm. Also a side effect of the drinking. Not an old hockey injury then, which is disappointing. No, actually when the doctor was trying to sort out why I had this, it's called vascular necrosis. Mm-hmm. He was trying to sort out why I had it. And he's like, okay, so do you have some old injury where you, I was like, well, not that I can think of. He's all, no, you would know. If you had an injury this bad, you would know. There's no, I think I did, or maybe not. Yeah. Family history, all this stuff. And he, I mean, he was in and out of the room like five, six times trying to sort out, okay, what is going on here? And he came back after like an hour and said, do you drink? And this was the fir- probably the first time where I said, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, well, all right, there's your problem. So I had just had my hip replaced. I was three months sober, and my wife left to go on a work trip to North Carolina. And I drove her to the airport at probably about this time in the morning I was coming back. And the whole drive, it's about it's about a 30, 40-minute drive from the airport. The whole drive back, I'm having this conversation in my head of, well, she's going to be gone for four days, and I'll just go to the store, and I'll buy, I'll buy like, you know, a box of wine or something that's, you know, like five bottles of wine or something. Mm-hmm. And when it's gone, I'll I'll stop thinking, oh, yeah, a, that five bottles I haven't drank in three months. That should last, you know, a couple of days at least, I would think. Come on. Right. And that side and then the angel side is you should really call your sponsor. You really, you really should call your sponsor. Mm-hmm. And that side did not win. Okay. So I went to the store and <laughs> I think it was gone by that night. Oh God. Yeah. And I went and got more because, well, shit, she's going to be gone <laughs> for three more days and I've already blown through it. I may as well go get more. It's not, it's not going to change anything now. Right. Well, I think on the third day, she still had one more day for whatever reason. She called it like five forty-five in the morning mm-hmm. and I'd already been up for I don't know. I don't know how long, but I was trashed. Mm-hmm. I was already trashed at 5:45 in the morning, and I answered the phone. I could have easily just said, "Oh, I was asleep. I didn't hear the phone." Mm. But I answered it, mm-hmm. and she's like, "You, you get, you had to get to the hospital, and if you're not checked into a rehab by the time I get home, which is like two days away, I'm moving out." Yeah, and so I. At that point, that was kind of, I went to the hospital and the reason I told about the other stuff was mainly to say, I went to the hospital this time and this was the least they ever did for me. I went in, I was there for like three hours. They gave me an IV with fluids just to make sure I was not dehydrated and not going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. They waited for my parents to come pick me up and they kicked me out the door. And then I found out five, six years later that my mom said, oh yeah, by the way, they told us when we picked you up not to let you out of our sight until you were checked into a rehab. If we left you, basically they were pretty sure you were just going to drink yourself to death. Yeah. So that was the, that was the moment. And I don't know why that time was different because literally nothing happened at the hospital, but there was that, that moment of, I can't keep doing this. This doesn't work. There's something about that five forty-five AM phone call. And you alluded <laughs> to it that, I mean, we, we find our turning points in various ways and that, you know, that's one of the things I try to, you know, drive home as, as I'm talking with folks is that like, 
you know, you don't have to have that Hollywood rock bottom that any number of significant moments, you know, it can be set, it can be the tiniest thing. And you answering the phone got you into the hospital. Yeah. Here, here's one of the tragedies of society though, is that the hospital couldn't transfer you to treatment, right? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would have been the easy thing to do, but yeah, no. When when you left the hospital, were you ready to go to rehab? If they, if they, if they would have if they would have said we can take you right now, I, yeah, I would have gone. Yep. I mean, it was it was like I had to stay with my parents for like two days. Yeah. Till they could actually find a place that would take my insurance and let me in. Mm-hmm. But yep. If they would have said you know I'll uh, intervention, mm-hmm. if they would have said there's a van waiting outside right now, it'll take you to a rehab. I'd have gotten in and gone. Yeah, I, I knew I, I knew I was done at that point. For me, it was the middle of the afternoon when Kayla took me to the hospital and I packed like a go bag and I like said goodbye to our daughters and to Kayla, went to the hospital thinking, I'll see you guys in a month. Yeah. And then it was only then that I found out, oh, you can't take me directly there. So then it was on me to leave the hospital. They kicked me out at three in the morning. And you know, basically, Ooh. you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Wow, stay here. Yeah. Jeez. So I'm walking around in the parking lot and thinking, can I walk two miles home or do I need to call Kayla in the middle of the night, wake her up and have her pick I me wake up? Her up? Which I did. You know, I resorted to that. She came and got me. But then it was still on me to make the phone call to get through the weekend and get into treatment that following Monday when a bed became available and all, all my insurance was approved. But whereas I had to wait like 72 hours to get into a residential unit, I do have a partner of the podcast that you can call right now and find out what the best route is to recovery. It's DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. If you're loaded, it's going to run you 80 bucks. That's the max. If you're a veteran and NIU student or unemployed, you're going to get a break. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email DUIBHS at gmail.com. All right, Dustin. So as we were talking about getting across that bridge, surely you and I are in the minority in that we actually got to a bed. That chasm between being in the hospital and, and actually getting into treatment, it's, it's, it's really fucking heartbreaking to think about the people who can't get across that. It, it is. And we could, we could discuss the healthcare system for hours, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it, it really is quite sad that people that want to do this don't have the opportunity and can't. And the crazy thing is, and I, I will speak for myself, I, I can't obviously speak for anybody else. If I hadn't been able to get into a rehab in a couple of days, mm-hmm. 
this could be- very well be a different story. I, I, I say I was done, but that was contingent on getting into a rehab and, and getting 30 days away from and, and really diving into the program and getting a footing in. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't done that right off the bat, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this, this disease is crazy. I might've suddenly changed my mind. Yeah. So 30 days in rehab, how far were you into being in that unit before you said, okay, I can do the work because a lot of people go to rehab kicking and screaming. It sounds like you and I, to a certain extent, were going there ready to do the work. Was it right off the bat? Yeah, it was. Um, it, it was one of those things that I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was a, a conscious statement to myself of I'm going to do whatever it takes, but having done three years of AA where I dabbled in working the steps and you know doing the things the whatever it takes thing at that moment stuck enough for me to go i spent three years not taking suggestions and not asking for help it was the i can figure this out and i can do this on my own i'll sit in meetings and i'll i'll read the book but i'm not if you just because you tell me go ahead and do this or i really think you should do this I wasn't willing to take that step and all right, I'm checking into rehab. There's no point in checking into a rehab and spending 30 days of my life in this rehab if I'm not going to commit. Yeah. And at this point I, 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 I was scared to death that I was pretty much going to die. Yeah. One of the things I do now when I'm out at bars playing with my band and looking at people drinking and, and thinking, Oh man, that would be really nice if I could have one mm-hmm. is I don't have another one in me. Mm. I firmly believe at this point, after the last couple of times that I went back out, if I go back out, I, I don't think I'm coming back. Yeah. And I've seen it happen too many times to people who had 29, mm-hmm. 30 years. Yeah. Think I'm fine. I'll, 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 I'll go back out and not come back. So that's in my head. I, I, I don't have it. I, I have to do this. Yeah. So yeah, I walked into it with a, all right, tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Okay. So you playing the tape forward is, is huge for you. Imagining, imagining what, what would happen if, if you did have another drink? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. When you get out of treatment, what did you form as a tool set? Cause those first few months are absolutely huge in terms of, for me, it was getting over the hump of instead of running away from alcohol for me it was like working on okay what do i want out of my life okay what what sort of tools did you build into your program like what what does your program look like and is it similar to what it looked like when you first got out no my program my my program is way different than when i got out i i i I have very different okay obviously mental headspace after after 10 years. Yeah. So tell me about the evolution. You've been there 30, 30 days in rehab is like boot camp. Like it, you, you eat it, sleep it, breathe it. Mm-hmm. They, you don't do anything without it tying some way in, except sitting around smoking cigarettes in between meetings. So when I came out, I was still recovering from my hip surgery. I wasn't working. I wasn't going to be working again for at least another six months because I had to have the other one replaced after I recovered from the first one. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I didn't have a job at that. Well, I had a job. I just was not working. So I had time right. on my hands. So I, I started my morning. There's a 7 a.m. meeting. If it's two miles from my house, I'd be surprised. So And it, it meets every day of the week. So I, I was up at that meeting every day of the week. And then I would occasionally hit a noon or an afternoon meeting or something along the way. And I, I talked with my sponsor all the time. I mean, all the stuff that for three years I had said, no, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. I started doing it. Yeah. And three years of not being willing and not being open and not doing the thing and not understanding why I couldn't get sober. Shocking. <laughs> when I started doing it, it worked. Right. I'm not, I'm not going to put a timeline on exactly how long I was every day and how long I was doing two or whatever. Yeah. But probably for the, at least the first six months until I went back to work, I, I probably was doing, I don't know, 20, 20 meetings a week. Okay. Yeah. It was, you know, that idea of, just don't drink until the next meeting was okay. Well, the next meeting needs to be yeah. <laughs> like in, in six hours, because honestly, I don't know. Yeah. Right. That was the beginning. Mm-hmm. And as I've gone through, I don't know how I like, I'm generally speaking a very private person. I'm an introvert. I don't like <laughs> being around people <laughs> like I, I can be around i can be around people and be fine for an hour or whatever but like yeah. constant being you know it 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 grates on me and it, it wears me out so i just you know at some point i <laughs> you know hey no i understand we were visiting with friends this past weekend and we spent like four hours at their house we got out of there oh yeah too much and i just wanted to lie down and cry <laughs> yeah Small talk. And that thing of how long do I have to sit here and keep doing this before it's rude or I, it would be acceptable for me to go, all right, I, you know, it's, uh, let's go home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the idea that for the rest of my life, I was going to be sitting in one or two meetings a day was unrealistic for me. And one of the things that, I don't know if it's just the way I am, at some point, you're, you're taught, pick up a phone and call somebody. Uh, go to a meeting. If you're, if you're having feelings about drinking, there's, there's, you know, call somebody, wash dishes. I mean, all these little things that everybody says you do. Well, going to a meeting and calling somebody, to me, is what the goal should be. But you're not always going to get somebody. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with that situation if you've never dealt with it. Right. I, I, it became a, I'm not stopping going to meetings. I still go to meetings, but I don't feel the need to be at a meeting once, maybe, maybe twice a week. Yeah. So what have you built into it? That's, that's filled those gaps. Life. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, life starts happening and, and I don't remember sponsor or just somebody in a meeting at one point said you there's there's a balancing act to this because yes when you're early in sobriety it has to be your focus if it's not your focus you're very seriously risking not making it Mm -hmm. 
and my wife and I had conversations very early in my sobriety about, and she's, she's a member of Al-Anon, so she was, she's doing meetings at the same time. And we had a conversation very early on that our sobriety or our, well, her sobriety, our programs had to be our focus. We couldn't come back to rebuild our marriage because although I said I didn't lose my marriage, I didn't know how close I was to losing it because she was, she literally was a half a second from walking out the door. She had money in a bank account that I didn't know about. Like she had the plan in place to walk out. Yeah. And I didn't even know it. So we had, we had work to do on ourselves and on our marriage. And we had to agree that our program comes first because if we don't work on ourselves, we can't come with our best selves to our marriage. Mm -hmm. life starts happening. So this, this person said, at some point, you're going to rebuild your life. And you're going to have things start the time that you would spend going out to coffee with your AA people after the meeting, going to meetings, all this stuff that you spent time doing early in sobriety is now going to be replaced with you're going back to work. You have a life again and a, a family that says, hey, we want to go on a vacation. We want to go do this. We want to go do that. We want to do this. You know, all of a sudden you have to choose. And this is everybody's choice and everybody's what they have to choose. At what point do you rebuild your life and then consistently say, yeah, yeah, I rebuilt that life and I got all this stuff back, but I'm going to spend a large chunk of my time away from it. Right. For me, it's it's finding this line of I know I I know I can't go back. I know too many people that have said I'm not going to meetings anymore. And a month, a year, one one person, the the guy that I mentioned that was 29 years and went back out, mm-hmm. he stopped going to meetings at 20 years. Yeah. He was fine for nine years. Right. Was this a casualty of the pandemic? This person? No, no. This was. This, this was, was a while back. Year, this was years ago. No. Got it. But that that the that's another ball of wax. I mean, take an example of suddenly meetings aren't there. There, I mean, you, Zoom meetings, but yeah. I could never get I could never get into that. Right. Out of sheer necessity, I would. Yeah. But they made me uncomfortable. I don't know why. It's weird. Yeah. Well, you miss that that in person fellowship, and and you know the virtual meetings are great for folks who who. Are, I think I think they're great for people who are new to sobriety because I remember how terrifying it was to walk through that door the first couple of times. So for a lot of people, it might be the entry point of being able to sit in a meeting with just an avatar and not your face. Literally anonymous. Yeah, yeah, I yeah I agree. And my wife my wife doesn't. I mean, part of my meetings over the span of the pandemic has been she started a Zoom meeting for her Al-Anon group at seven thirty in the morning. Nice. So I sit around having my coffee and I just listen in and it they're the same program. Yeah, yeah. They're they're the same program. They are literally the same program. So listening in, you just substitute what is usually for them is their addiction is people. Mm-hmm. And you just switch people for alcohol. <laughs> Right. And they're the same stories. I'm so glad that your wife's addiction became a healthy one. <laughs> you guys are doing well. Now, how long ago was it? Like, I remember being, when I, when I was in rehab, I remember, oh gosh, 
one of the coolest things for me was, you know, we had the regular rotation of guys from AA who would come in and speak to us. Mm-hmm. And the thing that resonated with me, I loved that there was this kaleidoscope of, of, of speakers. And the guy who I identified with said, you know, when you go and find a sponsor, look for a sponsor who has what you, you want. want. Yeah. Yep. See, we hear the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, how long how long ago was it that you that you took on that role and you were going into treatment centers and speaking? Was, was that a few years ago or? Uh, actually, my sponsor when I got out of rehab, I I had I went back to my sponsor that I'd been working with for three months, and he is the coordinator for the local area speaker. Okay. He coordinates it and. He had me, during the first six months of my sobriety, he had me, I think he had me go with him one time. Okay. And I I remember one of the speakers that came into ours was actually an ex, ex-football player and dynamic speaker. I mean, an, an amazing speaker. And I remember, aside from the fact that he regularly had two people stand up out of a group of like 20 and pointed out that you you two are the people that are going to make it mm-hmm. and the rest of you are probably not based on the percentages that's just unfortunately the way it is right. and he was turns out he was right i've i stayed in contact with a lot of the guys and and then he would tell him to sit back down and then he would have to stand back up and he would sit back down just as like four or five times during his his thing and i was a mad that i wasn't one of the ones standing up mm-hmm. it irritated it irritated me to no end like, I know it was random, but it pissed me off. <laughs> oh, man, you're going to tell me that I'm not making it? No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You don't know me. Yeah. It Having that message and having it come from somebody who clearly is a successful person, yeah. it, it just, I was like, I, I want to do that. I want to be able to give back what that person did. Yeah, and so having my sponsor actually coordinate the thing, I told I told him I wanted to do it when when there was a chance, and I think I was I think it was like seven months sober. Wow! And he's like, we have we have we have an opening. You know, if you want to do it, it's yours. I love that. I absolutely love that because <laughs> I I think about like you know the perception, and and I think a lot of it is, is I think it's an accurate telling of like Boston AA, where it's like you know. <laughs> Don't <laughs> I've spilled more than you've, than you've drank, like, like all that harsh shit. Oh yeah. But he enlisted you at seven months because you had something to offer and an eagerness to offer it. That's fucking cool. What was it like the first couple of times that you did it? This, this had to have been not unlike, you know, what you understand now is, you know, being on stage and performing in a band. It's, it's got to almost be sort of an art form that you develop over time. Is that, is that the case? It was, it, it, it was cause, and I, I did it. So it's been almost 10 years doing that now. It was the same four people on my panel for six years. So we obviously got to know each other really well. Yeah. The first couple of times I did it, I, yeah, no different than walking onto a stage to perform the first time, even though it's, you know, five, 10 people in a rehab. That's, that's about the size of the crowd that my old band used to play for. So I can identify with that. <laughs> but the first couple of times turned into war stories. 
Because mm. I just didn't, I didn't know how, for one thing, I had no idea how to pay attention to the clock while I was talking. Mm-hmm. So you have 15 minutes, go. And I start talking and I'm barely talking about going into the hospital multiple times. And they're like, dude, you need to wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we went outside and I was like, oh my God, you know, of course, inferiority complex. Mm. I walked outside. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, it was awful. It was horrible. I'll, uh, seriously, stop. Calm down. Yeah. It's okay. It takes time. You'll get better. And it probably took, I'm going to say, I mean, it's once once a month. So it probably took half a year to a year to really get feeling comfortable about it. Mm-hmm. And part of the art of it is you're doing this with the same four people over and over again. You don't want to be boring mm-hmm. to each other. Yeah. You have to sit through 45 minutes of each other telling essentially the same story over and over and over again. So you get really good at picking little things. I never liked going first because I would let the other person talk and then go, ooh, I like that as a theme. He talked about fellowship. So I'll talk about fellowship and I could build the story around fellowship you know what this is like that this is this is like jazz you know with, with all that improvisation as opposed to you, you know you know playing in a metal band and <laughs> being a bit more formulaic it is, it, it is actually that's a really good analogy it, it, re- it really works that way but yeah i mean now I, you go in and like what do you feel like what do you feel today how are you feeling? And my, my wife and I speak together mm-hmm. and people ask, like, all right, so do you plan out what you're going to say? What, have you guys written it down? No. What are you going to say? I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to go up there and how I'm feeling is just going to guide me to say what I say. And my wife will tell people, my higher power will put the words in my mouth. I have no idea what I'm going to say. I'm going to start talking and it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I will say, and she literally says, I, I want to know what my higher power wants me to hear. I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. That improvisation, it's almost got to be a breath of fresh air from, from playing in a band where it's like rehearsal, we're going to be tight, <laughs> we are going to hit every time signature change. Like uh, this, this jazz-like improvisation has to, be, has to be pretty cool. Now, here's what I think I love the most about this is that you played in this same band for six years that had to have become a huge part of your program that sort of fellowship and that shared mission of improvising and and operating as a sort of band and working toward this goal yeah and the fellowship thing you mentioned it earlier and i wanted to try and come back to it at some point that in and of itself is probably the biggest tool. Mm -hmm. The ability to walk into a room anywhere in the world and know that the people that you're going to talk to will understand what you're doing, Mm -hmm. what's going, what's going on in your head, what you're going through and, and literally have you say things that I've heard exactly the same from the other side of the country. It's, it's reassuring to go from, I'm not comfortable in my own skin. What do you want me to be to walk into a room and go, I can be as authentic as I want or as I need to be. And you're going to accept me. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, 90% of my friends at this point are program people. Yeah. I, I mean, I have friends, coworkers, the band, all that stuff. Yeah, they're not program related. They know they know the story. They know what's going on. So they're not like constantly pushing me to go out and drink or anything. Right. But but the majority of the people that I hang out with are in program. So even if I'm not attending meetings, I'm still around people that think and do things the way we do things. Well, let me drop this in here quick, and I don't want to get too caught up on this, but what is it like being the sober guy in the band? <laughs> the first band was interesting. And actually, the reason I ended up in that band was because one of the guys on the panel was the lead singer. Oh, nice. And he talked about it all the time and out of nowhere was like, oh, yeah, the guitar player quit. We don't know if we're going to keep going. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I, I, I can play that, <laughs> which I spent the first year of my sobriety not playing guitar. Oh, wow. Because I associated it with drinking. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was afraid I was afraid to because I always went out to the garage and drank and played guitar. Mm. And I was afraid to go out and do it for the association. Mm -hmm. So. I, when he said that, it was like, oh, wait a minute. He's in program. I will have a safe space when we go out and do stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a perfect opportunity. So, you know, it, it, I, I walked into that one and just like, okay, cool. This is great. We, we, we all romanticize this idea that doing drugs or drinking make us more creative or make us more dynamic as players. What was it like when you realized, holy shit, I am so much better at this sober. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was an awesome feeling when I, when I switched over to the tool band, I, I, I look at the stuff we play now. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go out and play drunk if I wanted to. Right. Our drummer, who is amazing, has said literally, if I drink a beer before I go out on stage, mm -hmm. it messes with my coordination just enough that I can't play it. Yeah. And if that's him on one, <laughs> I, I, it, would, it would never work. It would never work. The, being clear-headed, as, as much as I say, I, I don't... I, I, in my head about how I'm performing and what I'm doing, mm -hmm. being clear headed and actually getting to experience it and remember it yeah. is, is amazing. Yeah. Instead of coming off stage and, and the next day going, I don't know, how was it? I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah. That's pretty dope. Yeah. Kind of to circle back to one of our original themes here and what we were talking about that you learn how to not stop playing. And that you learn to kind of keep your legs moving and to plow through it, you know, when, when we slip up a little bit with the, uh, with the speaking in the, in the treatment center mm -hmm. by, you had no option, but to stop playing for a little while because of the pandemic. Yeah. What was that like for you? And what was it like? It, it was just what, a couple of months ago that you got to get back to doing that again. Yeah. I mean, that, has, that had been a major part of my my program. So having that pulled out from under was, I, I don't want to say I harped on it, but it was a shock to the system. It was like, mm -hmm. I, I missed it. You know, that statement about being able to keep doing things without having to have the constant contact. This was kind of the, the whole pandemic thing with regards to all of it was that moment of, 
we we're all here and we'll support you but there are times where you have to be there for yourself yeah and you have you have you have to have the tools yourself because nobody's going to go with you when you walk into the store <laughs> if you don't actually do the things you're supposed to do nobody's going to stop you right so yeah it sucked and i you know being with the same guys i mean when i say we were together for six years we one guy traded out still it's the same basic group of people we still talk well there's always a revolving door with the bass player come on <laughs> yeah it's always the bass player right <laughs> it's always the bass player <laughs> but yeah no we stayed in contact and you know you make it work yeah is what it comes down to is my sponsor said it i'm pretty sure everybody in that's gone through this has had somebody tell them at some point the two things we we don't drink no matter what, and we we're willing to do anything it takes to stay sober. Yeah. All right. If life's gonna say, hey, there's no meetings for a year, and you don't get to do that. All right. So what do I have to do? You find things to keep yourself busy. You, and having the having created that life and those things, at some point you go, I like this stuff. Mm-hmm. I've created a life for myself that is better than when I was drinking. Yeah. And at this point, you mentioned the playing the tape thing. I, I play that tape, but I also play the, do I want to rewind and go back to what I was yeah. and lose what I have now? Because what I have now is better than what I had before mm -hmm. I started drinking. Yeah. My life is better today because I work this program and I don't drink. Yeah. So I don't want to go back. I, I, I have, I have, I have a, a fun, exciting life without having to drink. So why? Yeah. There was something that you and I were talking about last night and forgive me for like retelling the exact same story for the benefit of the listeners. But as I was doing what any podcaster with his salt would do. I, I did some thorough Facebook stalking to kind of get to know you a little bit. Is is this another band, 46 and 2? Uh, yeah. <laughs> are, are you involved with this band? Yeah, we yeah, we we just started. Okay. It's it's a long story. Um <laughs> we're we're all we're all friends. Yeah. There's no there's no like this is going to cause problems. Yeah. But yeah, I'm 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 two of them. Okay, gotcha. So, you know, I, I saw the 46 and two and I put together that, that it was a tool song. And as we discussed me, not having been a tool super fan, it was like, I have no idea what that is. Like even, even the song that I freaking love the learn to swim, learn to swim. Oh yeah. Anima. Anima. There you go. I had no idea that that was the name of the song. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. oh shit, 46 and two. I don't know what it is. And the girls and I pile into the car yesterday to run an errand. I turn on uh, Sirius XM and I turn on lithium and what do you know? It's fucking 46 and two. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, universe, you're freaking me out. You mention that you notice these things all the time now in sobriety. I didn't think about this yesterday when you told me this story, I didn't think about it. I just literally thought of it right now. The lyrics to 46 and two are about confronting our shadow mm and learning to use our shadow, our shadow selves, our bad traits, and make them tools for us to progress. Wow. 
So if you want to take coincidences, <laughs> I do of all the songs that you managed to come across, it's highly appropriate. Holy shit, that's great! I, I think that, yeah. that 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 is that is a perfect place for us to leave off. It is quiet downstairs, which scares the hell out of me. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so, man, hey, I know that you're an introvert, so I really appreciate you doing this. Oh. I I think that it helps that like we can kind of smell our own. So, <laughs> you and I. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely. Nice to know we're not alone. Exactly. Well, thanks for joining me, man. Oh, thanks for having me on. This was awesome. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, take care of yourself and we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good. Have a good one. All right. Yeah. All right. So, you know, one thing I didn't ask Dustin about is all these coincidences that we keep running into. Like, what does it mean? Like, what is your higher power? We could probably talk about that all day. I'm going to finally start listening to these coincidences and stop writing them off as just happenstance. I'm going to buy into the fact that the universe, God, something out there is trying to tell me something. And I need to stand up and listen and realize that this is all very significant, that life is happening and that (laughs) I don't have to be in control because something out there is sort of keeping the train on the rails. That's pretty cool. I feel far less alone now after chatting with Dustin. So I'm so grateful to him for coming on the podcast. I hope that you were able to take something from it. Until we meet back here for the next episode, be sure to catch me on Instagram. My handle is at 40,000 underscore steps. Uh, You can catch me on there every Tuesday and Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Central Standard Time for an IGTV chat. So let's meet back here soon. Folks, just remember, outside of this space, if it feels like everything is falling apart, right here where we are, we are always coming together. I love you very, very much, and we'll see you soon. Peace.